So the Old Testament reading is Isaiah 12. And if you will notice, as you're reading it, notice how the, that the text moves from uh, reconciliation with God to uh, towards mission. So from reconciliation towards mission. Uh, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. A couple notes about the epistle reading. First of all, when Paul says at the beginning here that he used to think about things according to the flesh, he is not dividing up in his head like uh, a gap between like physical world and spiritual world. Paul, a first century Jew, would not have considered there to be a gap between the physical and the spiritual. What he's saying is, I used to think about Jesus in a really kind of a humanly way. Here's a guy who got executed for a crime, and that happens sometimes. The Roman government sometimes nails people that they shouldn't have. But now he thinks about Jesus in a a spiritual way. Not like spiritual antibody, but spiritual. Like I see that Jesus was executed, but he was executed as the eternal Son of God and rose from the dead. Anyway, second thing is, he says a famous verse, he's going to say, uh, if anybody's in Christ, they're a new creation. Uh, what he's saying is, is that in Jesus Christ, those of us who have been connected to Jesus Christ, what's happened is that the future, the new creation, like the future world of justice and righteousness that it is God's plan to create, has been pulled out of the future and planted here in Jesus, of course, who was raised from the dead, but now in his people, and this is why we are on mission to live righteously and justly, not just as individuals, but to spread righteousness and justice, justice everywhere. Anyway, 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 15th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. All right, so this is the sermon text for this morning. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, and he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. 
And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I'll arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Uh, But he, the older brother, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But it was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, O Christ. Okay, so uh, the sermon text is the parable of the prodigal son, which uh, that's a problem because, uh, not that the text is a problem, but it's so familiar, right? I mean... Uh, you guys, everybody, almost all of you, uh, those of you who are church people, had grown up like hearing the parable of the prodigal son. And it's been worn smooth with how many countless thousands like Sunday school stories and sermons until all that's left is like this shapeless blob of, uh, you, you know, nothingness. Just this, it's sort of like this vague platitude about, uh, God is a loving God who wants to forgive you. And uh, the, the, all, all the cragginess of it, all of the sharp, biting, uh, uh, hard-to-hear stuff about it is gone now, 2,000 years later. And part of that's our fault. Uh, and when I say our, I mean like uh, preachers, pastors. Uh, because we, we're the ones who've worn it smooth. And, you know, what, what are our, what are our alternatives? I mean, I, I realize when I stand up here that the, that there's a chance this is going to be boring because it's just something you've all heard before. And so you're just going to check out, okay, prodigal son, God forgives us, uh, even though we're bad people. Uh, and then you're going to check out. And so one of my temptations is to try to say, uh, like, uh, try to think of something witty and clever to say about the text. Uh, but those of you who know me know that, uh, witty and clever is uh, not my MO. So you're stuck with boring. Actually, no, that's, uh, let's not do that. Uh, our options, so what, what we're, what we're going to try to do this morning is not, not to like 
have some sort of like secret Gnostic knowledge that nobody's ever heard before about the parable of the prodigal son. Or what we're, what we're not going to do is say, when I say we, I mean me, I'm not going to say all the sermons that you've heard before, they've all been wrong. Uh, we're going to let, this is hard to do for postmoderns, but what we're going to do is we're going to let our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents have a vote here. We're not going to abandon like the, I mean, it is about God forgives us. But what we should do, and I think this will help us, is ask the question, why did Jesus tell the story? Like, what was his point? And his point is, so the, 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 uh, the religious right doesn't come to him and say, hey, we want to know, how much does God love us? And then Jesus is like, oh, well, I got a story about that. Actually, what they say to him is, why are you hanging out with whores and tax collectors? That's why he tells the story. This is troubling. Like, uh, you know, prostitutes in, in every culture are lowest class, right? The lowest common denominator. Uh, you shouldn't hang out with them is the common, like, this is like the way we think as a society. Because maybe, morality aside, just dirty people, right? So we can understand why it would be troubling to them why Jesus would become friends with prostitutes and hang out with prostitutes. Tax collectors also... It's a little bit different. Tax collectors, nobody likes the IRS. Uh, but you don't feel about the IRS the way that the Jews of Jesus' day felt about the tax collectors. Have we talked about this in here? So people hated tax collectors. And the reason why is, you might not like the IRS, but there are laws about how much you can be taxed or not taxed. And there they are. They're on paper, and you might not like it, but it's there. And most of us, uh, 99% of us are like, well, I, I prefer to keep all of my money. But I understand you have to pay taxes. Here's the way the Roman government did taxes. Have we stop me if we if I've talked about this in here? Uh, somebody, I just gave Angela authority to stop this. Um, you, the Roman government bid taxes out to the highest bidder. The Roman government would come into a territory and they would say, "All right, I'm, we're going to hold a bid on a certain day for tax collecting." You didn't the tax collector wasn't necessarily like a, like a job that you would do. It's you could go in and you could put the bid, and you, you could say, okay, Glenn Carbon is the territory. I bid, I'm just going to throw a number out there, I bid $5 million. And then somebody else would come along and say, I, I bid $5.2 million. And then the bidding would go like that until it would get up to a certain point, let's say $6 million, just for an example. And then everybody else would be like, I, I can't do $6 million. And the Roman government would say to the highest bidder, okay, it's yours. You have this bid. We're going to come back in two years' time, and you are going to give us $6 million. We will get $6 million from you somehow. You as a tax collector would then make your money by whatever you could get, whatever you could squeeze out of the people above $6 million. And there was no tax code. There was no, like, limit to this. You were basically like mafia work. You would squeeze the people until you get it. And these, these would all be locals, right? So these would be Jews. And not only would they be taking your money, but they would be actually working for the oppressors. They would be working for your slave owners, the Roman government. So these people were completely hated. There's something cool about like hanging out with prostitutes. Just by itself, that sentence is a bad sentence. Like think about it in terms of the, don't pull that out and write it down and remember that, just that. But there's something sort of like pretty womanish about, you know, prostitutes. But as far as like tax collectors, that's not cool at all. And, the people of Jesus' day, especially the religious right, are horrified that he's hanging out with these sorts of people. And so 
he tells them this story. That's the context in which you have to understand the story of the prodigal son. And it goes like this. We read it again to you. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods of the pigs that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Okay, here's a story. It's a story about a guy who leaves home, not just any home, but Israel, where the temple is, where God himself lives. And he goes off into a distant country and is defiled by contact with the pagans. All right, that's the whole point of the pigs thing. You got, and some of you have heard this before. Like this is, he's clearly in a foreign country. No self-respecting Jew would be a pig farmer. Here he is working for pagans. And he's doing maybe the dirtiest thing you could do, which is working, living, sleeping, eating with unclean animals. I would argue that if you're living in Jesus, we don't get this now, 2,000 years on. If you're living in Jesus' day, the subtext of this story would jump out at you. And the subtext goes like this. This is a part of Israel's story. Israel is living in the land that God gave them. And God tells them, if you obey my law, and stay faithful to me. I'll keep you in this land. It's the end of Deuteronomy. I'll keep you in this land and like make you prosperous. You'll be happy. But they didn't. So 586 BC, Neo-Babylonian Empire comes in, destroys the temple, and ships a big chunk of the Judahites off to Babylon, off to a pagan land, where they are defiled just by being in contact with pagans and not being allowed to worship in the temple anymore, which no longer exists. There's a promise, though, that's given to them through Isaiah and through Jeremiah and through Ezekiel, which is someday you guys will return back home out of your defiled state. You'll be returned from exile, and you'll live back home again. I would argue that if that's, if that's like the controlling story that you, as a first century Jew, would live under, this longing to return home from exile, and you can say, well, okay, so he's talking to people who live in Jerusalem now, but they're still not out of the exile because it's no longer the Babylonians, but now it's the Romans who are over top of them. And they long for the Roman government to be got rid of and for them to be living in their land with their temple, ruled over by their king, their Messiah. That's what they want. And Jesus is telling a story which intentionally echoes that. There's a guy who went off into a distant land where he was defiled by pagans, and then he's coming back home. And if you're living in Jesus' day, you would, you would instantly hear that story, I would argue. So he comes back home. And what happens? He is welcomed back. Verse 17, he comes to himself. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? I perish here with hunger. I'll arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Oh, by the way, this is, this is one of the main reasons why the religious right would be upset with Jesus. Because many of the Jews in exile believed, hey, we are in Babylon we are in exile because we have disobeyed God's law. And so this is, what, this, is, this is where the Pharisees come from. So now what do we need to do? Well, it's clear. We need to obey God's law. We need to do the best that we can to obey God's law. There's like a common myth. Again, this is for those of you who are church people. There's a common myth when reading the New Testament, like that the Pharisees are these evil guys, or that they're like preaching that you can go to heaven by works, which they're not really interested in that at all. What they are saying is this, is that we have to live righteous lives 
so that the ex, so that God will end the exile. And when Jesus tells this story, remember, what's the purpose of the story? The purpose of the story is to explain why he's hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors. What does the story mean in that scenario? Here's what it means. The time of the exile is over. And it didn't happen because you guys were really, really super righteous. It happened because I'm here and I say it's over. And you can tell it's over because now I'm hanging out with the exiled people. I'm hanging out with the dirty people. I'm hanging out with the people of the land. I'm hanging out with the people who need me the most. I'm hanging out with the pagans and the defiled. I'm hanging out with the prostitutes and the tax collectors. The kingdom comes, the exile ends because Jesus says it ends. That's the first step. Then he does something else. He pulls his hearers into the story and makes it, like all good stories, makes them decide which side are you on. Did you know this is why, this is why we like stories. This is, this is what stories do to us. They pull you in and they force you to make a decision. And I know I've said this, maybe it was an adult Bible study, I've said this to you before. So I, I, I really like the Godfather. And when you, when I watch the Godfather, I'm always, every time I, every time I watch it, I'm struck by the fact that I end up rooting for organized crime, right? I end up rooting for Michael Corleone. I, in normal life, don't approve of organized crime. But when I watch The Godfather, I actually end up hoping that Michael Corleone kills the bad cop. Now, what does that story do to me? Even if it's just for that two hours that I'm watching the movie, it pulls me in and it forces me to evaluate my worldview and to examine my, why do I think like this? Why am I shifting? This is exactly why Jesus tells stories, because it pulls his hearers and forces them to evaluate their worldviews. And that's exactly what he does. This is the second move. So first move is to say, so this is a rehash. First move is to say, the exile's over because I'm here and I say it's over. Not because you guys have been extra righteous. You don't have to wait for anything else. I'm here and it's over. And so I will hang out with whoever I want to hang out with, because whoever wants to hang out with me is the people that's in, regardless of their social status, regardless of their moral status, regardless of their behavior. If you're hanging out with me, you're in the party. But then, like I said, he pulls us in and makes us evaluate, are we going to come into the party? Or are we going to sit outside the party? This is the second half. So look at verse 25. Now, the old, now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother's come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father says to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. But it was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And what Jesus does is so, so you, you see, like, that's, that's the religious right that he's talking about, right? I mean, that's the older brother, the people who are like, I can't go into that party. I don't like the people that you've invited to your party. I can't go in there. And the father is basically saying, look, exile's over. Your brother's back. You should come into the party. That's where the story ends. There's really no ending to it because you write the ending, right? I mean, the Pharisees write the ending. It's, it's, now, now it's on us. Are you going to come into the party or not? And by doing it this way, by pulling you in and saying, here's the decision that you have to make. Who, who are you, which character are you going to be in this story? 
Are you going to be Michael, Michael Corleone, Corleone? Are you going to be the bad cop? Which character are you going to be in this story? Younger brother or older brother? It forces us to evaluate the two different ways of interacting with God's grace that are on display in the story. So the second one is the older brother way of interacting with God's grace, which is, I've been here the whole time. What does he he offer up to his father? Two things, right? I mean, loyalty and obedience. I've always obeyed you. I've always served you, and I've always obeyed you. I've never been disloyal to you, and I've always been obedient. That's a definite temptation is to approach God on that basis, is to say, just to be frank with you too, right, this is the LCMS way of approaching God. Like, our theology is good theology, right? I mean, of course God's on our side. We have good theology, and so he does whatever we want him to. And then it's shocking to us, isn't it? I mean, I hear this all over the place in the Southern, Southern Illinois district. All this, like, sort of confusion about these churches that aren't LCMS churches with their bad theology that are growing and getting bigger, and people are thriving, and we're sort of confused. And our first default mode as LCMSers is to say, well, they're just, you know, I, I don't whatever you whatever you would say, like to, to marginalize them or to say, well, they're just like scratching itching ears, you know, and they're just trying to appeal to the lowest common denominator and uh we don't have to take them seriously. We can belittle them. Certainly we would never we would never validate what these non-LCMS churches are doing. We might we might if the wind is just right at our back we might acknowledge that they're fellow Christians. But even that, it's hard to spit that sort of thing out of your mouth. We Institutionally, we tend to be older brothers in the LCMS. We are the right ones. We've been here since 1840-whatever, and we've been serving the Lord, and we've been doing right, and we're going to stick to it, and God's on our side. That is not the way to approach God. Like somehow we have him tied up in our back pocket because we've got good theology or whatever. Institutionally, that's the way we are. Now, typically, I'm talking about myself. This is the way I think about people who have different theologies than me. Personally, I'm like the younger brother, though. The other way of approaching God's grace is to be like, hey, we've been forgiven by God. This basically means you've got carte blanche to do anything. And really, I mean, all you got to do really is ask for forgiveness, Right? You do whatever you want. You have permission for God to do everything. If, you know, of course, God, there's some stuff that God doesn't want us to do. If you do it, you shouldn't do it. But of course, you're going to do it. And so just ask for forgiveness. This is the other way to approach God is to be like, it doesn't matter. You know, to, to, to mistake the grace of God as permission. To mistake God's willingness to forgive us as, I mean, we're talking about license here, right? To mistake God's willingness to forgive us as a sort of like not caring. He doesn't really care what you do. Jesus died for your sins, so that's all that really matters. Which one in the story are you going to be? Which one am I going to be? Let me talk about me, right? These are my two options. License or legalism. Self-righteousness or self-permission. Is there a third option? Granted that license and legalism are both not biblical. Is there a third option? Actually, in the story, there's not a third option. I just, personal personal experience, I've never, ever not been one of these two things. Institutionally, I think we, as the LCMS, are more older brother, 
Whereas personally, on a personal level, I think we were more like a collection of younger brothers. I actually, is there a place in the middle where you are loving and respecting God's grace and at the same time longing with all your heart to obey Him and be faithful? If that place exists, I have never been there. I found my, I find myself personally bouncing back and forth between these two ditches. So there's really, so here's another way to say this is this. God is not saying that the older brother is right. The younger brother should not be wasting his money on prostitutes. So the older brother is right. Right? Well, okay. On a certain way of looking at, yeah. But, but is the younger brother right? Because the younger brother is the one who actually turns back to faith. That's true. There is no righteous party here. They're both wrong and they both need to repent. All that we're left with, at the, for, for hope, at the end of the story, all we're left with is the father. And look, I, I didn't, this is not, I didn't make this up. This, Tim, Tim Keller said this. this. is the first time I heard this was, was from Tim Keller. So prodigal son, it's the name of the parable, right? Do you know what prodigal means? Prodigal means wasteful. Like we call this the parable of the prodigal son because the son takes half of his father's property and spends it on parties and prostitutes. That's wasteful. But Tim Keller argues, and it's totally legit, that the, the parable ought to be called the prodigal father because as wasteful as the younger son is, it's the father who's even more wasteful. The younger son wastes all of half of his father's stuff, and then he shows back up at home. And what does the father do? He's like, give him a robe. Give him jewelry. Let's make him some food. The father continues wasting stuff on. In fact, the, the older son, who feels like the father owes me because I've been loyal and obedient all these years, goes to the father. And what does the father approach him with? Verse, uh, 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 where are we at here? Verse, uh, 31. So he says, I deserve a party too. I've been loyal and faithful. And the father says, look, you're always with me. Everything that I have belongs to you. You're looking at, the, at this the wrong way around. You look at it like you've done these things to deserve this. I've already given them to you. All of my parties belong to you. All of my money belongs to you. All of my property belongs to you, the father says. All of creation belongs to you. Because the prodigal father wants to waste his grace on you. He wants to dump so much grace on you that you can't possibly out it. He wants you to know that no matter which side of the spectrum you're bouncing around on today, whether you're self-righteous or whether you're licentious, that's an old word, whether you are complete libertine, he loves you and he accepts you and you belong to him and for the sake of his son, Jesus Christ. He gives you everything and as soon as you waste it, he gives it right back to you. As soon as you spoil it, he gives it to you fresh. As soon as you blow it up, he gives it to you restored. Because he's the prodigal God. Amen.